Psychology is defined as the scientific study of the mind and behavior, and the general understanding of it is necessary in all aspects of life, from dealing with coworkers and situations at work, to maintaining relationships with family and friends, and even dealing with your own personal mental health. According to the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics, the field of study is more popular than ever, with approximately 192,300 individuals working within the field this year and an expected 12% growth rate over this next decade. That being said, I think it's very important that we understand the requirements for going into the field, both education and passion-wise, along with some of the main issues one deals with in the field on a day-to-day basis. Welcome to Unmuted Generations, and today we'll be expanding our knowledge into psychology. Hey everyone, I'm Ryan Mew, and in each episode we focus on expanding our horizons and personal knowledge of the world through storytelling and sharing unique perspectives. My guest this week is Stephanie J. Wong, an Asian-American licensed clinical psychologist and entrepreneur quoted in publications such as Forbes, U.S. News & World Report, Self, and Shondaland. She also hosts a podcast, Color of Success, which will be in the link in the description below. How's it going today, Stephanie? I'm doing great, Ryan. Thanks so much for having me on the show. I know it must feel weird to be on the other side of the of the couch per se, considering you host your own podcast. This is the first time and so I'm super happy. I'm super happy too. I mean, I know as fellow podcasters, we connected over Asian Hustle Network and we are generally the interviewers, but I'm super glad to interview today and learn more about you. So what got you started on this journey with psychology and where did your passion really stem from for the subject? So my journey... I went to high school that was approximately 90% Asian and a student committed suicide during high school. And it it became clear mental health was not really addressed. This was a magnet school and the counseling was just related to like academic achievement and college planning. It was expected you would go to college at the school. Very different experience than maybe high schools in different areas. But this, this was a clearly... Uh, different experience. I didn't yeah. see much it was diversity. Like Achievement based high school. Yes, yes. I didn't see much diversity in like ethnicity until I went to college. But clearly, there was a, a need for mental health care and education, and I saw this need and a calling to do so to help others and and myself. And I was very fortunate because I declared pre psychology as my major right off the bat. And I ended up like loving it in, in college. So most people aren't as fortunate. I'm sure people go into college not knowing what they want to do many times. And they could change majors two or three times, which is completely fine. And I really encourage that to find what you like. But luckily, I, I had already kind of known I wanted to do that. So I was in a psychology, a trauma class, and I caught kind of the eye of my TA who saw my potential. And I asked her to meet during her office hours to talk about grad school. Um, She was a PhD student in social psychology at the time. And so obviously she knows the ins and outs of getting into a grad school. But, you know, my family, I come from a long history of grocers and people in the food industry, similar to like the, I guess, stereotypical Asian immigrant family. So 
I was the first one out of my immediate family to go to college. And then I didn't really know the different degrees or master's versus PhD or whatever. I just knew I wanted to help people. And you can definitely help people through a master's or whatnot. But of course, like my ambitious, (laughs) competitive, achievement-oriented self, when I found out that there was a PhD, I asked her, how do I get there? She literally wrote on a binder paper the activities in the classes that I would need to do to get into a program in clinical psychology. And I taped that, taped or pinned it on my wall in my dorm room. And I followed it blindly for two years. It was like the Bible to you. <laughs> it, yeah, it, it really was. I mean, she told me, you need to get involved in research. You need to do a thesis. You need to get some volunteer internship experience. And it, at UC Santa Cruz, we actually don't have a clinical psychology department. So I had to kind of cobble together different experiences to make me competitive looking to schools. Mm-hmm. Um, and I joined her research lab and, you know, I graduated at the top of my, my class in, in the major, but congratulations, <laughs> thanks. But I'll tell you, and this is, this is not like a all warm and fuzzy story because going from a bachelor's degree straight to a PhD program was, and is extremely competitive. In the program I went to, you get your master's on the way to your PhD, but you don't get accepted just to get your master's. You have to get accepted to the PhD program. And there were eight girls in my class who got accepted, women. And so I had a really hard time getting in. I I went from one interview that was a private professional school that lets hundreds of people in to saying, I heard you walk on water, to getting these rejection letters and crying my eyes out because I had worked so freaking hard. I mean, and that's why I say it's not all roses. Like, yes, I graduated at the top of my class in college, but at the same time, like having this goal from a four-year college to then compete with people who two of my classmates already had masters. Some people go back to school after having careers. And I naively thought, well, I worked my butt off. I it should be no problem. And that's when reality sank in. So, but I was very fortunate after being waitlisted, I was able to get into this program and why they're so competitive partly is because they're they're full rides. They pay for your tuition, they give you a stipend to teach or do research. And so you're not having to pay for, for those aspects of the program. So I know that after my year of being accepted, the class sizes started to shrink. So five or six, the schools I were applying to would like accept anywhere from four to six, or some programs had the high eight to 10. But I mean, that number is huge, not huge, but it's very competitive, right? Yeah, no, it, it sounds extremely competitive. And you're probably dealing with a lot of different age bias also, right? Because if you're going straight from your bachelor's, as opposed to some people who may be trying to get their PhD after having some work experience, or maybe after getting their master's or transitioning careers, it must have been hard, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, even to this day, my stimulus value, which I've done a lot of work on, small Asian American woman, and talking with just so many diverse people and 
I, I'm a program director at the hospital. And so it, the, the age varies a lot, but I think people have initial reactions. And my favorite thing was when I was teaching at the university during grad school, I would go in the class and, and just wait. And when I would go to the front of the class, everyone's like, where's the, where's the instructor? Where's the professor? And they thought I was the TA every time. And <laughs> so I'm teaching uh, intro lab or when, when you get farther along in the program, abnormal psychology and standing in front of 50 people, they're like, okay, how old are you? Yeah, no, I definitely hear about that bias a lot. Uh, in fact, a couple of my guests from uh, in a future episode that will be released are authors of a book called In Her Purpose, which is basically talks about uh, redefining sex for Asian American women because they have to deal with different stereotypes uh, in terms of being weak or looked down upon because of their height or the fact that they look younger than the general population. So that's very great that you brought that up. How did you deal with that? You know, because I know some people just stick to their guns and other people kind of fall beneath the cracks. At some points in my career, I've overcorrected where I've be- become so loud and noisy, bordering on annoying, if not annoying, to advocate for things that I believe in. And so I'm a very different person now than I was when I was 21 in, in graduate school, right? I know who I am. I know what I stand for. And there have been situations where people really do push you around because of their perception of you. And I just always encourage to speak up and use your voice within, of course, politeness and respect. But I, I really think that if you are, your heart's in the right place, say it. I think that's what we see a lot in society nowadays. A lot of people, they are saying what they're feeling and they're also saying what they're believing. But going back to what you said, I don't think it's coming out in the right fashion. And I, I think it's harder to understand people, uh, whether it's people talking over social media or even in person, um, if they aren't necessarily saying it in a, in a nice way, because it's like, then it's like, I don't want to listen to your perspective as much, or I won't acknowledge you because you're like being kind of immature, even if your perspective is totally rational. Yeah. And I think that's one of the things that I've had to continue to um, work on is making it digestible, right? Because I think, and this is parallel to therapy, a client could come into my office and we do an assessment or initial psychotherapy appointment. And I have a conceptualization in my head of maybe all the things that I see that I could tell them, but I'm not going to be like, you need to fix this and you need to fix this, nor is that my style of therapy. I really think my job is to help you help yourself and give you a different perspective. And ultimately it's your life. When you walk out of this office, you're going to have to make some tough decisions. But the, the point is, is that you can't bombard people with a whole bunch of information when they're not ready for it. And you can rupture the psychotherapeutic relationship early on and they won't really come back. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree with you on that. And and you definitely don't want to do that. The worst thing you could do is put a bad taste in someone's mouth when they're actively going to you for, for help. And what I really encourage people to do is shop around because it does come down to fit. It's not going to be um, the first therapist you see, it works out. You know, just like if you think about your medical professionals, your primary care providers, there may have been some that you were more comfortable in sharing 
um, I'm going to make it funny, a boil on your ass with, I haven't had that personally, but you know, there may be primary care providers that you're more comfortable with sharing the, the nitty gritty with and others where you're like, Oh, I'm not, I'm not going to tell you anything. Yeah, no, 100%. And, and I'm kind of curious to hear your standpoint on this. So in 2014, there was 106,500 people who were pursuing psychology degrees in the U.S., and that number was expected to rise upwards of 20% from 2014. And I'm sure it's going to rise even higher now with all the problems in our society today. I'm kind of curious, do you think that people right now, they're pursuing psychology and it's such a popular trend because there's like a supply meets demand problem? Or do you think it's more because of they're very passionate about the subject and um, making like a change in society. I think it's probably a mix, but in general, like a bachelor's or undergraduate degree in psychology can be applied and used in so many different jobs. And I think a lot of times, even when I was going to college years ago, it, it very much was more of like a general education kind of a degree, because you really do need to understand some basics of psychology when you're going into various jobs. And there's very few jobs where you just don't work with anybody. <laughs> yeah. and so it's, it's helpful to have that frame of reference. But I think more and more people are seeing the need. It's kind of in your face right now, right? The COVID is, is giving this overarching anxiety and depression. And right, the demand is so so high. And I think we really do need people that are diverse and can meet the needs of various communities and not have just one school of thought. Yeah. Well, I think at the end of the day, it comes down to we live in prior to COVID, we lived in a very safe society. And with everything going on this year, a lot of people feel unsafe and and unsatisfied with everything that's going on. So it is unfortunate, but highly suggest anybody who's listening to this, if you're having feelings of this, um, and, and I'll get your perspective on it too. Like, when should somebody know, hey, I should see a therapist for this issue? Well, you know, I'm very pro-therapy, so it's kind of like... And I'm very th- pro-therapy also. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So I'm just like, if you feel like it'd be helpful to talk to a therapist, that would be great. And if the therapist sends you home and says, you know what, we can work on a few coping skills, maybe see you for a couple of weeks, then great, right? But have if you really think that you need to talk to someone, have a conversation with them. I and I understand like people's financial situation and so forth can be, be it could be a challenge, but I would say if you're even thinking about it try it out if you can. Yeah, definitely agree there. I'm very pro-therapy also, um, very pro-psychology in general. And I I think that there's no harm, no foul to going. I, I je- definitely see a couple barriers to entry. And the first one is probably being comparing their problems to others saying, you know, I may feel this way, but at least I'm not homeless. At least I'm not living in poverty. And they that may deter them from going to see somebody that would be able to help them. And I think the second thing has to do with emotional intelligence. I think a lot of people are uncomfortable with an idea of going to somebody who may know them and the way their mind works better than they know it themselves. Because, you know, you guys are practiced uh, in terms of different psychological concepts and you 
probably have different levels of emotional intelligence you guys deal with on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, and I and I really encourage clients or, or people who are seeking therapy that, for me anyways, my perspective is to be very collaborative because you've lived with yourself <laughs> longer than yeah. I've lived with, lived with you and I'm not living with you. So the point is, is that it is a joint effort, right? And the whole point is to, again, give you a different perspective of what of what may be going on, because going back to the personality disorders, people with personality disorders don't tend to be the ones that sign up for therapy because the the crux of it is it's everyone else's fault and not mine. Yeah. They usually go at the urging of a loved one, or maybe it's co-occurring with something that's non-personality disordered and, and it brings them into treatment again, maybe substance use. And that that's kind of like, whoa, that's an issue. But a lot of these things can have an impact on various aspects of their lives. So it, it, it's just really challenging. And I'm, I'm just really encouraging people, if you or someone tells you that <laughs> there are issues going on, just put it in what we call the consideration zone. Yeah, I definitely, uh, I, I totally agree with that. And, and I think also when I think of, uh, of kind of stereotypes like that. I think of the Fresh Prince of Bel Air, and <laughs> yeah. there was an episode where, where Will and uh, Lisa, his fiance at the time, they went to like this marriage counselor therapist, and at the end of the episode, they're beating each other with like yeah. these balloon sticks. I think you know what episode yeah. I'm talking mm-hmm. about. Yeah. So it's just like, I think at the end of the day, there's a lot of media and forms of entertainment out there that paint a different picture of therapy that may not be conclusive and sometimes they paint it in the form of comedy which isn't necessarily the best thing but i think it's very beneficial and that if anybody feels the need to go to see a therapist or they are even contemplating in the first place that they should just go see see them i mean there's no real harm foul uh with the exception of obviously maybe paying a small fee but other than that it could help you uh in a tremendous way in the long run. I guess I'm kind of curious also, you know, what is your methodology when you're kind of helping clients? Because I know there's several different types and everybody is different in their own way. Absolutely. I mean, I'm more integrative as you, as you caught on to. Um, and basically I was classically trained in cognitive behavioral therapy, which is that your thoughts influence your behaviors and your feelings. And as I was going along more in my training, my career, I've definitely integrated psychodynamic therapies and interpersonal therapies that really look at past experience and experiences and how they influence the present. I work with a lot of couples and so do emotion-focused work. So as you can imagine, it's it really is having a tool belt for me and integrating as I, as I see the, the need in various individuals because there's some people who over intellectualize things for lack of a better word where they're thinking all the time and while (laughs) while cbt yeah (laughs) while cbt could be helpful it's like i'm not for me i may not give you more homework to like think more it's interestingly and it depends it it does work for some people that over intellectualize but at the same time it's like we can't just like tell you to do the same strategy for every client, right? Or else a robot could do our jobs. And 
I'm adamant that even though people are trying to like create these programs to be a therapist, I'm like, there, that cannot be captured. And if COVID's taught us anything, yes, we're doing therapy virtually, which I actually love, but it doesn't take away from human interaction. Yeah, no, definitely. Like the feeling of touch and and maybe just being around people or sitting on a couch and like looking somebody directly in the eye instead of a webcam when your phone may be going off in the background. Like that's, it's really, really big. I totally agree with you. Um, One of the other questions I kind of had is just in terms of like your your methodology. So obviously I know it's, it's probably they're telling you things, you listen to them. You kind of brought it up a little earlier uh, in terms of just like exercises. So what type of exercises are you talking about? Like, are we are we talking about the typical things we see in the movie where you paint out your feelings? <laughs> or is it more of like, you know, uh, I, I've heard some people do music therapy. I've known some people who have done art therapy and, and then obviously just homework on the side. Yeah, art therapy and music therapy are huge and recreational therapy. I don't have people paint in my office, although now I really should because that sounds like something I'd love to do with them. I think, again, it's holistic. So the I, I was laughing and chuckling because of all the misconceptions there are. One, un, unless it's like really, really old school, you won't be like laying on a couch, at least in my therapy room. Um, you are sitting there. It's very conversational, even like we're having now in in terms of my approach. I have certain questions that I want to ask people just to get to know them a little bit better, but I don't have this like robotic thing where I have to get to every single question. It's how can I connect with a person? And my, my first supervisor ever for my first patient, he told me, the thing I want you to do is to not help this person. And I go, what? And he goes, just be curious. And I have internalized that for years because what he was really talking about was building a relationship, a professional relationship with the client so that they can trust you. And they can then you can start talking about interventions and stuff. In terms of exercises, an example that is classic CBT is looking at some of your thoughts and what kind of what we call cognitive distortions that are coloring the thoughts that lead to maladaptive feelings and behaviors. So an example would be a when there used to be traffic over here, someone cuts you off and you're like, that guy's an a-hole or that guy's a jerk versus, hey, that guy might have been late and he might be fired. <laughs> this is like the fifth time and whatever. But that's an example of labeling, right? It's We're calling this person an a-hole because he cut us off. And so while it seems like a very trivial example, I mean, people, road rage is real, you know? <laughs> oh, yeah. No, most definitely, especially here in Southern California. I mean, we see it all the time. It, it's kind of interesting because I feel like with me, at least, when when I'm going through some mental fortitude or, or a hardship and then I, I connect the thoughts together and I'm able to figure it out in my head, it's it's almost like uh, it's like instantaneous, like the light bulb comes on. And I feel like it's different for everybody, obviously. Um, but I, I feel like it's really good to like take a, a deep look at your thoughts and practice introspection a lot more. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And also self-compassion and catching yourself So if you notice that tendency, don't belittle yourself, but say, hey, I noticed it again. Like, what 
what's kind of going on with me. Maybe there's some other issue that's leading you to be a little bit more on edge with traffic or whatnot. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think I think at the same time, if you're if your client base is a lot of different entrepreneurs or people who are successful, uh, is as much time like time is such a finite thing that like I feel like it's hard for them sometimes because there all there will always be one part of their life that's kind of unbalanced in a sense, you know, like they may spend like 12 hours working and then may come home and they want to spend time with their family and they won't be able to work on their, you know, physical self and go to the gym or something along those lines. That's just kind of a broad example. And speaking of the physical self, like how important is that? Like we always hear quotes like your body is a temple. And I, I truly am a big believer that having a healthy body, consistently working out, taking your vitamins as cheesy as it sounds is like really, really big for mental health. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's why I really take on more of a holistic approach. I work on a lot of interdisciplinary teams where we really encourage nutrition and there's a a specialty in psychology, behavioral uh, medicine and behavioral psychology where they can really focus on curbing or quitting smoking or eating more healthy, exercising. And obviously it's very interrelated, right? There could be thyroid issues that could be causing weight issues, which can also have problems with depression. And obviously if you are at a weight that you're feeling very unhealthy, you could also have co-occurring self-esteem issues. So again, I think one of the main things I want to drive home today is that the mind and body are very, very connected. And I like Jada Pinkett Smith's quote a very long time ago where she said, I go to the dentist every year, so why wouldn't I go to a therapist? So many people are struggling and don't feel comfortable seeking help when when things are so interconnected. No, I totally agree. And that's a great quote, by the way. Um, I I think it's very important to kind of have like more of a holistic approach to that uh, and I think also it's important to mes- uh, mention that I know you also work with with substance abuse clients, and I think it's very important to to talk about you know maybe overworking out. I know there's a lot of people who sometimes uh, suffer because they used to have issues with alcoholism, or they're just like a workaholic, and they're told, "Hey, maybe you should work out. Maybe you should put your energy into this," and then they end up overstraining and over you know, just working out, overextending their muscles. And, and that could lead to injuries and feelings of self-doubt and not ever being able to reach, you know, their full potential, even though working out and having a healthy body is considered like as a, a good activity in our society. Well, I'll draw reference to a class that I took. I hate to age myself, but over a decade ago. And <laughs> and uh, I'm, I'm glad for Korean skincare. But um I think one project we had to do was picking something that you do very often a habit, right? And of course, even at that time, I was on my phone. And so I I turned off my phone for the week that we were, um, unless it was like an emergency from school or something. But I just didn't look at my phone. I turned turned it off at certain points in the day. And really, if you think about now, being on your phone can be an addiction, right? Being on social media, having this, uh, digesting all this news and things like that. So I do think that anything can be addictive if it's impacting your functioning. And I was talking to another Asian Hustle Network member 
in one of my interviews I'll be releasing later, but she was talking about how even she was exercising like huge amounts, even if she, if she would, and then she would binge on bread. And of course that's more on the eating disorder spectrum, but just that whole thought is exercise could also be very addicting if you're doing it to the max and you're at that point where you're super unhealthy. Unless you're like a athlete, like the rock, I am not like discouraging people to push their body, but at the same time, like if you're doing it way past your limits to where it's hurting you, then I mean, that's something else to consider. And in terms of an, I want to differentiate between personality disorder and, and addiction though. Like the way that we define personality disorders are longstanding patterns of behavior and um, I know addictive personality gets thrown out there a lot, but a, an example of a personality disorder would be narcissistic personality disorder, I think is the most uh, popular one to understand. And so I think there's a fine line because there's, I mean, I definitely work with my share of clients that have personality disorders comorbid with substance use disorder, because let's use narcissistic personality disorder as an example of like, if you think that you're better than everyone else, you're bragging, you're think you're at this high level of status and it may not be commensurate with what you're achieving. And then you go home and you feel like you have low self-esteem, et cetera, then it can be comorbid with using alcohol, drugs, et cetera. Yeah, that's a great point. And I I think generally, you know, if if somebody feels like they may be um, over exercising, they'll feel strains in their muscles and injuries, and and hopefully that will lead to them taking a step back as a uh, opposed to pushing their addictive behavior even a step further. In terms of like research, um, like how much research kind of goes into this? Because I know you have your formal education, you have your PhD, and that took many years to get. But we live in an ever changing society, and there's new problems that are always coming up because of different issues, like how much research really goes into it? Yeah. So, I mean, when you're licensed, um, which California it was is one of the sh- most uh, stringent ones where you have to do the national test plus the California test, you are required to do 36 hours every two years of continuing education. And, and also what kind of guides my interests are the clients I'm working with, right? It's like, I... Obviously, no one knows everything, and I think it's a continual learning process. There's always different suggestions or, or additions to what we're doing. So I really try to choose my CEUs and focus my energy first. If I take more, that's great. But I, I want to focus on things that will actually have utility. And not to say like research doesn't have utility, but if we think about is there a connection between maybe something that was validated and what we're seeing in front of us? We have to kind of make that judgment call. So I definitely think the CEUs give a good theoretical framework and then talking with colleagues about, hey, how can we implement this? This is a manualized based treatment, but we're not just reading the manual to somebody, right? It's like, how do you pick up these nuances when you're when you're implementing these treatments? So it's it's always integrated in what what I do. Yeah, and everybody has their different way of doing it and their mm-hmm. different way of interpreting it also. If there was like a certain experiment that you wanted to study or run uh, because of the way current society is kind of acting today, 
uh, what would it be? I mean, we, we have various examples like a class divided where it's like you have the blue-eyed and the brown-eyed kids. We have the car crash experiment from Loftus. But I'm just curious about like what your thoughts would be on your experiment. There is so much. <laughs> I would <laughs> definitely want to do a research study on just what is contributing to these like racial biases what kinds of interventions would be helpful to look at unconscious bias? Because I think, again, I draw a lot from what I see around me. And it, I mean, even as a psychologist, I'm a human. So it makes me sad to see people that I love being tormented, having colleagues who are afraid to leave their apartments because they're afraid of being harmed. And so it's like, how can we create some knowledge and interventions so that people can feel more safe in the society we live in? Yeah, no, I totally agree with you. I, I think that's the biggest misconception about people who are psychologists and as high up as you are, because I think they're like, oh, well, since she has her PhD and she knows the human mind, she must always be okay, you know? And I'm sure that's not the case at all. <laughs> No, and I think it's very human. And I told you right before the call that I came back from a cabin retreat because I recognized I hadn't taken a break since January. COVID, I I started working from home in March, but I hadn't gone anywhere since January, like anywhere. I did go to Target like once, which was a huge win for me because it was like a treat. But also I was like, oh my God, like I'm out in the world and Uh, How far do I have to stand away from people (laughs) when I'm like in an aisle, you know, it's like a whole new world in in that sense. But I I recognize my limits and I have a very supportive family who has kept me very grounded and mentally stable. Like it's, it's odd because I carry a lot of people's stuff um, with me, obviously, but I've actually felt like I've coped really, really well because I have a lot of support around me. Yeah, I have a lot of support around me too. My family, my friends, my girlfriend. Uh, you know, I actually just went on a vacation with her too. So we, we both went on vacation at the same time. But um, yeah, I think having that support system to back you up during a time where, you know, it's you're told that it's not okay to feel okay is like a really, really big thing right now. Yeah. And I think it's not only social support, but perceived social support. So maybe, you know, some people that they have a lot of people that are really showing support to them, but they don't feel supported. And so I think it's, can you also internalize some of the support that you're getting to be able to make it through? Like, I don't know. I, I'm, I like my alone time for a few hours to a day. However, I don't know if we would if I would be telling you the same thing about my mental health, if I were living alone and literally not seeing anybody. Yeah. I'm definitely the same way in that aspect. Like I have people always hitting me up on my phone and I'm very appreciative of that. And and I, I also need my own spare time every now and then. And I think at the end of the day, like in terms of perceived social support, like it, it's kind of about managing expectations. But on top of that, the main important thing is like you need to be your own biggest supporter. Like you need to be your own biggest cheerleader because that will eventually push you, uh, I guess, to the next level and make you not feel as alone or as crazy as you may perceive yourself to be. Of course, emotions go up and down, but as long as you're actively working on 
you know, trying to, to figure out what the problem is, diagnosing it and, you know, making steps towards a more positive mental health. That's what matters at the end of the day. So I really appreciate you coming on and sharing your perspective about just uh, the field of psychology, your journey so far, your thoughts on everything. Um, I was wondering if you have any last messages to provide to the audience. Yeah, I mean, my my message would really be to reach out for support, help and resources because therapy is not shameful. It's a strength. And my approach is really to have meaningful conversations and provide you with different perspectives and not tell you what to do. It is to help you help yourself, like I said, when you are outside of my virtual office and just normalizing emotions that they will go up and down, that the for me anyways in my personal life, my goal is not to be happy all the time. It's to be able to be at peace and be, being able to sit with negative emotions as well and use my coping skills. And that's why I... When I started the podcast, the the second thing is I focused a lot more attention recently on my Instagram because we cannot keep up with the demand for people who need mental health providers. And I'm putting out just basic coping skills and like positive videos. And so people can at least internalize some of those things and get it out to more people. Because if you think about having a therapist one-on-one, which is, you know, what a lot of people want it's it's become really, really difficult, right, to get services. And so I really wanted to share these inspirational stories with people and, you know, just have fun because that's kind of what has been getting me through as well. Yeah, it's all about having fun at the end of the day. And I really enjoy the content I see on your Instagram feed personally. Uh, you know, the videos, whether they're funny or they're helpful in terms of tips and, and also your podcast, The Color of Success, I was wondering if you could go into it a little, um, you know, and maybe tell the audience, you know, what it is, if anybody's curious to listen to it. Sure. Yeah. It's the Color of Success podcast, and it's streaming now on iTunes, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. And my vision really is to destigmatize mental health and really share inspirational stories of ethnic minorities as they build businesses, brands, and really address barriers. We talk about mental health strategies and Many have sought professional help, so they they are kind of being they're being very vulnerable about it. And these are very successful people that have gone through a lot of things and still work on it to this day. And if you want to learn more, my website is drstephaniejwong.com. Ryan will have that in um, the description and. My IG is color underscore of underscore success. And so, yeah, feel free to to reach out. Um, the podcast and the Instagram are literally just to help people out. I mean, my practice has fortunately been full for very long. And um, I really wanted to give back. And and it's just led me to meet amazing people like you, Ryan. Like, I'm I'm so grateful to make a new connection, even virtually, I'm sure one day we'll meet up in the Bay or Southern California. Most definitely. When California is not on fire and COVID's over, we'll, yeah. we'll definitely. It's a tall order, but I think we'll eventually, yeah. I, I have hope. Day by day situation, but I really appreciate you coming on, being so vulnerable with your journey again, talking to us about psychology and educating us. I, I really, really appreciate it. So thank you again. 
All right. Thank you so much. No problem. And thank you for everyone who tuned into this episode. As always, I challenge you to ask yourself the question, how far are you willing to expand the horizons of your thinking and actively seek out discomfort to evolve and create a happy life for yourself? Make sure to subscribe, leave a rating or review if you guys enjoyed this episode. Other than that, I hope you all have a great day and I'll see you guys later.